Good evening, everybody, and thank you for joining us today for our educational series here at the Braille Institute. Uh, the educational series is an educational program focusing on pediatric eye conditions for parents, teachers, and other professionals working with young children with visual impairments. The topics presented should not be considered a medical or educational consultation, but rather information to help us better understand and assist children with visual impairments. Now I have the pleasure of introducing Ms. Courtney Palm. She will share her insights into sleep, disturbances in infants and young children with visual impairments. Thank you very much, Courtney. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Um, so what we'll be covering today are really things that I think are important for all children regarding sleep. And then we'll get into a little bit more of the specifics for children with vision impairment. But one of the reasons why we start with the general is that Anytime a child has any type of diagnosis kind of overlaying them, it is very easy to focus on that and give it all of the credit for being responsible for sleep disruption. And that some of the other things that we would look at for all children, regardless of a diagnosis, gets disregarded. And so most of the time with the children that I've worked with, and this is children of any type of uh, developmental condition or de developmental difference that a lot of times they get lost in the shuffle because the focus is really on uh, their diagnosis and not some of the things that we know are really big contributors to all children this age regarding sleep. So we're going to start with factors that are affecting sleep. We're going to get into nutrition and gut health. This is a very significant piece of sleep that I think gets under discussed a lot. Um, sleep in general is looked at as behavioral that if they're not sleeping well, that you're doing something that they're not, that's not letting them sleep well. I've rarely found that to be true. Um, sleep hygiene and sensory information that's related to sleep. And then specialties when we know that we have done the things that need to be addressed and when to look into specialties and which specialty to look into. So when I think about factors affecting sleep, so like I was saying before, I, my background is in uh, clinical psychology. Clinical psychology loves behavior. They love, you know, the ABCs, antecedent, behavior, consequence, what's the reinforcement, what's, you know, making this a functional behavior. Um, but they kind of leave off these other two areas that over the past 18 years of doing this work that I find to be much bigger contributors to sleep. The first being systemic, um, which is anything to do with uh, what's happening in your body. And then sensory, the environment and how your body responds to that environment. So when I talk about systemic, what I really mean are things like gut health. You know, how are they, how are their bowel movements? Are they having constipation? Are they having over-frequent where they're going multiple times a day? Is it loose and smelly? Do they require a laxative to go to the bathroom? Things like Miralax uh, actually cause nutritional malabsorption or malabsorption of nutrients in the gut, and that can cause a lot of sleep issues. So even though you're treating the symptom, we're not really getting to the source of the problem and, and then we get a different problem. Uh, respiratory patterns, snoring, mouth breathing, nighttime congestion, uh, skin, you know, how is it bumpy and rashy, itchy, they have patches of eczema. The skin tells us what's happening internally in the body. Uh, allergies of any type food-based allergies, environmental allergies, seasonal allergies, those all activate and flare up this histamine response and natural histamine in the body is responsible for keeping you awake. If you're producing too much of it, it massively interferes with your sleep quality. 
diet and nutrition, what are they consuming? What are the sleep nutrients that they're getting? And then for some children, neurological activities, some children are more prone to uh, seizure type behavior when they're sleeping. You have heightened neurological activity during sleep. And so you're more likely to have that experience during a sleep event. Um, you know, something that I think most families would be aware of and probably would have a neurologist looking at, but something that we could put into this category. Sensory are kind of made by different things. Sensory diet it really just refers to how have we prepped the body for rest? Are we giving them enough uh, physical stimulation, that mental fatigue or mental uh, physical fatigue, muscle fatigue needed to be able to rest? Are we giving them enough lead in to prepping their nervous system to calm down? Um, this also goes into what the pre-sleep routines look like. You know, pre-sleep routines, um, everyone thinks it has to look the same. You read a book, you rock in the chair, you take a bath, all those things. It really depends on the child. Not all children want to look at a book. Um, some children find bath very stimulating and it makes them more awake. Some children would do better with fine motor activities, things that they can touch or fidget with um, while they're listening to something, music, um, rocking, or certain types of movement or pressure. Uh, so, you know, these are things that matter because it really has to be child specific. There really isn't a one size fits all sleep plan for any child. They're very unique and individual. They have their own special regulatory system, their own life experiences, their own sensory needs. And we really have to lean into what we already know is working to regulate them. You know, one of the biggest questions I get asked by parents is, um, you know, about stimulation before bedtime or positioning bath before bedtime really just depends on how your child responds to it. If they get overexcited from something that we think is regulating, in theory, rocking is regulating, but maybe not for everyone. If you have a very sensitive vestibular system, which is that fluid in your middle ear, um, maybe rocking is gonna rub up your nervous system and that's not the best way to prep them. So again, it's very you know individualized for each child. And then the, the sleep environment. So, um, you know, how comfortable is the the bed setup? You know, and it depends on their age. You know, over one, we have more flexibility with that bed setup. Under one, we're a little bit limited. Um, temperature, sound, um, for children who have perception of light, the amount of light information in the room and the type of light information. Um, things like that really do play into uh, regulating your uh, nervous system to prepare for sleep. And then we look at this third area, which is behavior. So that does go into routines and predictability, sticking to a schedule. Um, sleep props is really just referring to anything that they can't replicate on their own. If your child has to be rocked to sleep, they really can't do that independently. Or if they need to feed to sleep, that requires the other person. Um, and so what we really are trying to work towards with this kind of behavior part of the sleep plan is independence. What can they do on their own so that doesn't require them to wake all the way up to get back to sleep. Because when we're sleeping, we have non-REM sleep. So the, the point of non-REM sleep is to gradually calm the nervous system down so that you can go into REM, very deep sleep, your muscles are paralyzed, uh, and then you come out of it and you go into very light non-REM sleep again, where you do need to move a little bit. Your muscles have been paralyzed during REM. So now your body needs more input, but 
typically we just roll around. We just change position and we start moving back into those stages. However, if you are used to having something in this lighter stage of sleep, um, nursing bottles, rocking, uh, someone to give you your pacifier, whatever it is, um, then you need that to go back to sleep. And so they'll come all the way awake, look for that, and then go back into their sleep pattern. Um, the other piece of course is self-soothing. What can they do for themselves? And that depends on motor skill, uh, depends on emotional regulatory skills, depends on, uh, having a chance to practice. You know, it's not something that they're going to just do on their own. They have to have a chance to practice. And sometimes that means you have to remove something that might be keeping that pattern functional. Uh, you know, and, and we're looking at how the parent response is, is it consistent? Is it something that can be replicated or is it something that requires the parent to have to keep being involved? So in looking at diet and nutrition, especially for young children, we know that they need certain nutrients for sleep. So the most important nutrients for sleep are iron, the most important. It regulates the length and quality of your sleep. Kids need about 10 milligrams of iron per day. Now children that are on formula um, or let's say breast milk and the, the parent that's nursing is taking an iron supplement. We assume that they're getting what they need. That first year, that nutrition is really controlled for because they're either on formula or breast milk. They get the benefits of that. They're also on a lot of iron fortified foods, baby oatmeal, baby rice cereal. Those are iron fortified. And so they're getting a lot of iron in their diet. Once they are over one, and they come off of breast milk formula, or they're just drinking a lot less of it because they're eating more food, then we kind of lose that source of iron because 10 milligrams of iron is 20 eggs a day or 20 chicken nuggets a day or 15 hot dogs a day. It's just a, like an avalanche of protein. And it's very, it's honestly, in my opinion, not possible for them to consume it. And so if they are not getting some kind of supplementation, then usually between 18 and 24 months, we start seeing trouble falling asleep, waking up at night, uh, being wide awake in the middle of the night for no reason, getting up too early, dropping a nap at too young of an age. And it usually coincides with other parts of development. They're, you know, maybe acquiring more language skills. Uh, maybe they're moving into an open bed if they had previously been in a, a crib, or maybe they've been co-sleeping and now they're sleeping independently. And so it gets lost in there that people think, oh, this is just some kind of a developmental stage. But the American Academy of Sleep Medicine has always maintained that that 18 month sleep regression is really more related to iron and not that it's low. You can have normal iron that is not high enough for sleep. And it's important when looking into this, that if you're talking with your child's pediatrician, that you're not looking at hemoglobin, which is really the presence of iron in your red blood cells. It is ferritin, which is how you're storing it. And that's a digestive issue. And some children are more efficient at storing it than others. But the other reason why we see iron kind of falling into this normal, but not optimal range as kids are 18 months and older is that calcium blocks the absorption of iron. And they are usually consuming a lot of calcium. Um, it could be from dairy products, it could be from orange juice that has calcium added. They're adding calcium to a lot of other things now. And so even if they're consuming things that are iron rich foods, they may not actually really be storing that iron because it's not absorbing. So iron is a really, really big deal. Um, it just doesn't come up a lot. Some pediatricians will bring it up, some won't. And it's not that one's right and one's wrong. They have a different lens. 
the sleep medicine doctors that I work with look at iron very differently. They look at it from a pediatric sleep perspective. Uh, and this is something that's important for all of us, honestly. The reason why adults have trouble with sleep as well. You just need more of it as you get older and bigger. So the rule with iron is you need 10 milligrams a day and you can supplement that. And I do recommend talking with your child's primary care provider. Um, but keeping in mind that if you are going to look into it, ferritin is what we want to check. And that normal ferritin ranges on a scale from 10 to 60. American Academy of Sleep Medicine says 50 and higher is what supports quality sleep. So just to keep that peace in mind. The second one is magnesium. Magnesium, uh, magnesium regulates your limb movement. Um, it calms the nervous system and it keeps your bowel movement soft. Um, iron can be a little bit constipating. That's something important for parents to realize if you have a child that's already constipated. We do not wanna make that worse. We need to treat the constipation and get to the source of that first because we don't want the iron to make it worse for them. Um, but magnesium is a natural stool softener. It's good for you. It's much better than Miralax or a laxative that causes that flushing where you don't absorb a lot of your nutrients that way. Uh, children need 100 milligrams per day. Again, formula and breast milk, likely you're going to have that amount over the age where they're consuming much less of it or they're off of it. Then um, it's challenging. It's a whole avocado a day. And maybe they do eat that. But um, a lot of kids don't. And so magnesium is something that we take in the evening. Um, there are a lot of different options for magnesium for children. They have liquid gummies, chewables, all kinds of good stuff. I think I have it in this presentation, but if not, I will send that to Patricia just so you know the ones that are available for kids zero to four years old. Um, but they work together. The iron and the magnesium work together. And the nice thing is, is that calcium actually helps magnesium absorb. So you do not have to avoid calcium when you take it. You don't have to put them together, but you don't have to avoid anything. We just try to do it in the evening because the effects are much milder than the iron in terms of regulating sleep. But uh, while it's at its most potent over those 12 hour period of time, we want it to be when you're sleeping. And then finally, vitamin D. So you need 400 units per day. This regulates your circadian rhythm and your internal sleep-wake cycles. Um, and so this is something that we always want to be mindful of uh, because we know that if your child has decreased perception of light, they can have difficulty with regulation of circadian rhythm because the retina typically is using light information to either trigger melatonin secretion or decrease melatonin secretion. So vitamin D is something that can be helpful in internal regulation of circadian rhythm. So I've, oh yeah, so good, I have it in the slides. So I've listed out the ones that are available. Novaferum is a liquid. Um, it's vegan, kosher, organic, no sugar, dye, or alcohol, no allergens. They add glycerin to it to keep it from being constipating, uh, but it's iron, it's liquid iron. It tastes a little bit like metal. So they have a berry that's naturally sweetened with berry extract, or they have a chocolate that's sweetened with cacao extract. They've done as much as they can to make it palatable. Um, I have some parents who mix it into stuff or just give it to them out of the dropper. That's one option. Renzo is a dissolvable tablet. Uh, so it's actually safe for babies even. And you can just chew it and it kind of disintegrates in your saliva, but also very easy to hide. You can crush it and put it in applesauce, peanut butter, anything that's not dairy. Uh, Flintstones with iron is a chewable. You break it in half depending on the age or for kids over four, they take the whole one. I think that one is okay. Um, it's probably not my first choice, but it's better than nothing. Uh, and then chapter one makes iron gummies. And uh, again, 
tastes a little bit like metal. It's made from liquid iron. So it just depends on any kind of sensitivity for the kiddo with uh, taste. Magnesium, Child Life is a liquid, Mag Kids is a chewable. Um, I've had some families telling me that Pediathrive, I don't know if it's still available, actually. That was the, the one that was dissolvable and tasteless. I know that there are other ones, um, but I don't know if Pediathrive is still available. And then chapter one also makes magnesium gummies. And then the vitamin D options as well. So when we think about this gut-brain connection, what's important to remember is that when we think of melatonin, we think of this as a, a neuro uh, a neurohormone that's being released, which is true. The retina reports light information to the pineal gland in the brain. That gland receives that information and it either allows for secretion of melatonin or it restricts it. So depending on the amount of perceived light, that can absolutely affect the release of melatonin uh, neurologically. But what we have to remember is that you produce 70% of your melatonin in the gut. And so if the gut is not healthy, if the gut microbiome is not healthy, meaning they've been exposed to a lot of antibiotics where the gut bacteria just has not had a chance to be reestablished. They have uh, yeast diaper rashes. Um, children who have yeasty diaper rashes often will also have laughing for no reason, being wide awake in the light, but like squealing and having a lot of fun. That's an overgrowth of gut flora that can really cause that. Um, they're not having just normal formed stools. Then that really affects the absorption, not just of the nutrients from your diet, but also of that gut melatonin. So when we see any of those things, I know that I've heard from so many families I've worked with that it gets kind of downplayed. Oh, some kids have constipation. I even had a parent who saw a gastroenterologist who was told that her child, her child had toddler constipation, which was normal. That's not normal. You should poo. Everyone should be pooping. And if you hear that, that's just not legitimate. It means that there's something inflammatory in their diet. Something is not digesting well, or they need more gut bacteria because they've been on antibiotics. Um, so we look at diarrhea, chronic constipation, foul smelling stool, like there's poo. And then there's like um, that usually indicates bacteria, uh, skin rashes is also associated with gut problems or stools that are very light in color. So just some of those things that we want to just be mindful of. And that if you're seeing it, uh, that's not something that's to be expected. And we want to get to the source and not just keep treating the symptoms. So there are a lot of different things that we can see with relation to the gut health causing sleep problems. Of course, the number one being that you have malabsorption of nutrients. The number two is you're uncomfortable. You may have gas, you may have cramping. If you're constipated, it can make you feel full and you consume less during the day. Um, and so that is why we look so closely at this is that the gut and the brain have a very strong connection with each other and they absolutely influence each other. They influence more than just sleep. They influence mood, uh, activity level, metabolism. I mean, the gut is very, very important. And a lot of kids this age are picky. They want to eat what they want to eat or sometimes eat the same things over and over again. And they can also crave the foods that they are intolerant to. When I see children, who the parents say, oh yeah, when I pull the milk out of the fridge, they're like, ah, ah, they're like frantic to get this milk. And I tell them that's concerning. They have eczema, they've got constipation. 
they got dark circles under their eyes and now they're they're like jonesing for this milk this usually means that there's an intolerance and that's hard intolerances are hard to catch because they don't show up on an allergy panel um but when we see these things happening we can assume that there's something in their diet and that is the hard part is what is it and that usually requires some elimination diet or consulta consultation with a specialist so that is that kind of systemic piece. The other thing that I want to you know, bring up is, is going back into the breathing that I don't really think we should be hearing anyone breathing. It's one thing if it's soft, but if they are snoring, if they're heavy mouth breathing, if they have really foul smelling breath, they have a history of ear infections, or if they get sinus infections or they get strep easily, this is the time to see an ENT and your nose and throat doctor is going to look at all of this. Um, they usually require a soft tissue x-ray of the head and neck, but that enables them to see adenoid size, tonsil size. If someone looks in your child's mouth and says adenoids and tonsils are fine, they can only see the tonsils. Your adenoids are above the roof of your mouth behind your sinuses. They cannot see that without an x-ray or sticking a camera up your nose, which I don't think any child's letting that happen. <laughs> but we want to pay close attention to that because you can absolutely have obstructive sleep apnea at this age. And obstructive sleep apnea looks different for every child. It can be asymptomatic where they're not snoring or mouth breathing, but they have really foul breath where we know they are mouth breathing. We're just not hearing it. They can have night terrors where they wake up screaming. They can sweat profusely in their sleep. Um, they can have middle of the night insomnia where they're wide awake for no reason. And so if you're noticing those things coupled with any of those other factors, the breathing, the ears, the sinuses, the, the, the strep or the tonsils, an ENT is going to be the best person to do that evaluation because that's really their specialty. Okay. So going into sleep hygiene, um, sleep hygiene is just a fancy way of saying what's your habit routine. How do we prep the system for sleep? Now, depending on a child's um, processing and visual information, we have to have other things that can cue the system that it's time for sleep. So for children with typical vision, they respond to the lighting being lowered or um, their room looking different or seeing their bed turned down. But if your child has a uh, visual impairment, the visual cues are not gonna be as strong for triggering the brain. So things like diffusing scent, um, doing a massage or certain types of tactile input to let them know that you only do around sleep because these things are supposed to cue the brain to get ready for sleep, calm the nervous system, and really, you know, shouldn't be that long, like 15, 20 minutes prior to um, bedtime. So the sensory needs for sleep are compression. So for baby babies that are not rolling, swaddling. Now, if they're rolling, no swaddling. Um, the transition swaddles for kids that are starting to roll or magic Merlin or the zippity zip, something like that, where they can safely get their hands underneath them if they do roll. Um, if they are over the age of one, maybe adding a foam topper to the crib mattress. So it's not so firm and hard. Um, children that are older and working with an occupational therapist may use like a weighted blanket or something to get more compression. Ideal temperature of the room is going to be 67 to 72 degrees. Again, kind of varies a little bit depending on if you have a hot sleeper. Some kids are hot sleepers. And if you want to know if yours is, you would tell. If they wake up and they're clammy or kind of sweaty, they're probably a hot sleeper. You want to be mindful of that because being too hot when you sleep can cause a night tear. 
or at the very least make you wake up and be restless. Um, some kids like a little bit warmer. So you just have to kind of base it off of what your child is showing you. And honestly, what you know about yourself, a lot of parents who are hot sleepers make little tiny hot sleepers. Um, sound low. And I really feel natural white noise. If you don't have it, it's fine. But natural white noise is either going to be like a, a wall plug in fan, a uh, dome sound machine. Those produce natural white noise, but they're not a fan. They're just pushing air out of a vent. Um, if you don't have it, you have a regular sound machine, fine. We just don't anything that changes in pitch and tone. If you're using a, a synthetic uh, you know, sound machine, brown noise or rain or better, uh, white noise on a synthetic sound machine is more like, like a static ETV that's a little irritating to the ear. So we want something a little bit softer than that. The tactile piece, the soothing, the massage, the rhythmic padding, loveies or taggies or things like that. Uh, taste is a big piece of cueing the brain for sleep. A lot of kids maybe have a formula breast before bed. They might have a specific bedtime snack. They might have milk, whatever it is, but it's something that is typically offered before a sleep event, before a nap or a bedtime. Smell. So, uh, you know, essential oils, nothing synthetic uh, that can be very irritating. Uh, I try to avoid artificial fragrances completely. Uh, and it also depends on if they are sensitive to any kind of scent or if there are certain scents that bother them, you know, so that doesn't mean that that's going to work for everyone. But if you find something that is helpful that you can diffuse, whether it's diffusing essential oil or adding a little bit to a lotion that you can rub on their skin that can cue the brain. Um, and then going into this piece of sight, you know, that's going to be very different for, for these children. Um, you know, light is one of the primary regulators of sleep. That's why sometimes when children have a vision impairment, it's very easy to blame the, the poor sleep quality on this piece. And it may be responsible for some of it, but it's probably not responsible for all of it. Um, the amount of perceived light is going to indicate the amount of impact experienced by the child. Um, for children that have no perception of light, we're going to see um, more disordered circadian rhythm uh, just because of that nothing is really cueing the pineal gland in the brain to release or stop releasing melatonin. So it is something that definitely can be a factor. And we don't want to say that it isn't a factor. It's just, it is not the first factor that I look at. I look at these other ones first. And if they are where they're supposed to be, then we look at how much this, uh, experience of the retina is playing into regulation of their sleep. So, um, you know, what we want to do is just make sure that we have a variety of sensory cues. So we know that based off of that vision piece, we need to have other things that are only associated with sleep. And so for the children that I work with who have vision impairment of some type, I own, I have like a lot of rigidity around those sensory cues. Um, that sense, if they use it as only for sleep events, if there's music or sounds only for sleep events, if there's a space that they sleep in only for sleep events. Um, and then for some children, what we call increase to decrease uh, helps, which means putting them in a bath brings their body temperature up. It pulls the blood to the surface of the skin. They come out, it cools really fast and it actually forces the nervous system to calm. And that can be helpful for some children to regulate the nervous system before bedtime. But again, just using those things very exclusively. So they are very powerful 
to the brain. Um, so when we think about medical intervention, um, I have a lot of kids that I see that are very quickly put on melatonin. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Um, I, again, I never start with it because if your iron ferritin level is not high enough, melatonin can actually make your sleep worse. Uh, it may put you down faster, but then you may wake up and be awake for hours. Um, some children have nightmares when they take it. Um, a lot of children who are body trained and take it will start wetting the bed um, because over-the-counter melatonin is a synthetic hormone and it can interfere with your ADH hormone. And that hormone is responsible for slowing the kidneys production of urine at night. And that's why we'll have kids start peeing the bed again when they take melatonin because the, if the hormone, if the ADH hormone is not released, then you produce uh, urine in the same way that you would when you're awake. And that's just too much to hold. Uh, there are a lot of different sleep medications. Now, of course, this is usually provided by a pediatric sleep medicine doctor. Uh, clonidine, gabapentin, trazodone, things meant to override the system and to put you into sleep. The, I do work with some kids who need to take that. So we have done everything that we can. We get them a consult with the sleep medicine doctor and the sleep medicine doctor finds that everything is where it's supposed to be. And then they will potentially try some of these medications to see if it helps regulate their sleep. Um, some children, depending on what the retina can perceive, can do bright light therapy. Um, and again, I always have parents uh, get iron ferritin labs drawn. Make sure that those things are all in optimal range because they're such an easy thing to fix and such a common problem for kids this age. So this last piece in terms of sleep specialists, because there's a lot of different options out there. So we have uh, sleep coaches which really can be anyone. Any person can be a sleep coach. Uh, and I'm not trying to demean the profession. It just means that there is no degree or even required certification associated with it. Um, any person can kind of hold themselves out of this as a sleep coach. Um, some are excellent and some I think are not so excellent because there is no regulatory system in place for that or no requirement. Um, I personally find that sleep coaches are most helpful with setting up a behavioral sleep plan. Let's get your child on the right schedule for their age. Let's uh, make sure that they're not overusing sleep props. Let's, um, you know, see what their self-soothing is. So they definitely have their place. And I think that they can be really helpful when the other pieces are accounted for. Uh, sleep therapist, so that's uh, someone like myself, requires a master's in, uh, you know, usually some kind of psychology field. Um, because this really falls under the category of behavioral sleep psychology. Um, and then in addition to that, you have to have specialized training um, to be able to look at these pieces because you work as a collaborator when you need to know if they need a, a medical next step. So you're able to assess for that need. It doesn't mean you're diagnosing. It just means, you know, when you need to refer to someone who specializes in that field. A sleep psychologist is a doctoral level therapist with specialized training. Most uh, pediatric sleep clinics have a sleep psychologist on staff who works in conjunction with the sleep medicine doctor. So for example, if this is a need that you have, you can go through uh, like children's hospital. They have a sleep clinic with their own sleep psychologist. So many of these children's hospital programs with sleep clinics are very much, <laughs> very likely to have a sleep psychologist on staff. Um, that's their job, that's their specialty. Sleep medicine physicians are medical doctors, uh, they do a specialized residency. 
for sleep medicine in particular, they are great. You know, and I usually tell parents just because you need to see the sleep medicine doctor does not mean you need to have a sleep study. Sleep studies are really tough on kids this age. Uh, babies do a little bit better with them or school age children do a little bit better with them, but babies, toddlers, preschoolers, early, early elementary, it's very stressful for them. They're, they're hooked up. They need to, you know, monitor oxygen saturation levels, heart rate, leg movement, neurological activity. This is not a natural sleep environment. And so they either don't sleep, so they don't have any data, so it doesn't help. Or they do sleep, but it's not their normal sleep. So we're not really capturing what they're experiencing. So what I typically recommend to families when I refer them to sleep medicine is request a consult with the doctor first to see if this is even something that is valuable because we don't need a sleep study just to confirm that they don't sleep well. And sleep studies are primarily evaluating limb movement, uh, light and deep sleep, uh, oxygen saturation, if they're having apneas, neurological activity or electrical activity in the brain. If this is not an area of concern or just confirming, yeah, they wake up a lot, that, that really isn't worth the long wait to get in, the cost, and just the stress to the family. So I find that most sleep medicine doctors are actually somewhat conservative about referring people for them because if they know that there's other things they can look at first, they will most likely do that. Uh, I've even had kids where they had very obvious symptoms of sleep apnea, snoring, mouth breathing, or they've done the x-ray, the ENT confirms, yeah, adenoids are big or tonsils are big or both, but we want to do a sleep study to confirm. I usually recommend for parents to go back to the ENT and say, if they're big and they're causing these issues, can we just remove them? And then if it's still not better to do a sleep study, because it just puts everything out. And at this stage, of development, they have to sleep. We can't keep waiting months and months and months and trying different stuff. You know, most ENTs, uh, if they're seeing that, are going to recommend something to try that's non-surgical in the meantime. But I do tell parents to be a little bit pushy because you don't need to wait six months to confirm something that's already been shown on an x-ray or that an expert has agreed is a problem. Um, so the sleep study is not the be all end all. Um, at least not for this age. It just is very hard to capture what their natural sleep looks like. So behavioral strategies only, sleep coaches, developmental strategies, sleep therapists and sleep psychologists, and then medical strategies only for medical providers, nurse practitioner, physician's assistant, sleep medicine doctor. Um, so one last thing that I really want to talk about is that when we're looking at those areas, these are the things we want to start with before we go into the behavior. You know, I can answer questions and I've, I've saved times so that we can um, about some behavioral sleep strategies, but I'm reluctant to encourage any family to start that if there are any of these other pieces that are outliers. If you try to start a behavioral sleep plan of we're going to cut feeds overnight, we're not going to lay with you at bedtime, we're not going to come in the room and these other pieces aren't where they're supposed to be. You will not be successful. They will be very upset and stressed. They will start to feel anxious about going to sleep. We want to avoid that as much as possible. Children need to have positive associations with sleep. Sleep is so good for you. It is meant to be a positive experience. We can always gradually work towards decreasing parent involvement and increasing 
autonomy and independence over the skill of self-soothing, but not if any of these pieces are sitting out there with big question marks over the top. So in general, I do recommend for families, whether it's through the early intervention program, through children's hospital, collaborating with the sleep therapist or sleep psychologist to make sure that all of these pieces are in place and then they can give you a sleep plan. Absolutely. But the sleep plan is the last step. It's not actually the first step. So um, I wanted to save time here to be able to answer more specific questions um, about what some of the families uh, in the group might be experiencing. So I'm going to stop my screen share just so I can actually see y'all. Uh, not just my PowerPoint, and uh, and then just kind of open this up to any questions about the information we've just covered, or um, about your children in specific. And really quick, everybody, I'm going to go ahead and stop recording at this time, um, so that you can answer, ask your questions. <laughs>